Ah, George Jetson. A man created in the 1960s to depict what life would be like in 2060. He lives in a city in the clouds. He drives a flying car that neatly folds up into a briefcase that he can carry into work. When he drops his kids off at school, he releases them in a pod that gently guides them to their destination. But when Jane, his wife, wants to go shopping, he tries to give her some cash. She takes his whole wallet. Cash? Really? It's 2065, and George is still using cash. Maybe it's because nobody thought banks would innovate. Or maybe it's just George's way of trying to control Jane's spending. Either way, it seems woefully out of date. George, my friend, do we have some solutions for you. This show is all about separating hype from fundamental change. I'm Paul Jarley, Dean of the College of Business here at UCF. I've got lots of questions. To get answers, I'm talking to people with interesting insights into the future of business. Have you ever wondered, is this really a thing? On to our show. Today's podcast comes straight from our Dean's Advisory Board meeting, where we spent the afternoon talking about fintech. The College of Business has partnered with the College of Engineering and Computer Science to launch a master's program in financial technology. Many of our board members have a keen interest in this topic, So we brought together a panel to talk about one of the many innovations in the sector, open banking. Today we're gonna talk a little bit about a subject I don't know very much about. I kind of stumbled upon this a few weeks ago, which is often how we come up with ideas for the podcast called open banking. And I have um, three people here who are gonna help us understand what open banking is and whether or not it's gonna be a thing going forward. So I'm going to ask each of our panelists to start out just by introducing themselves, and I'll start with Christo. Christo. Hi, uh, my name is Christo Pirinsky, and I am a professor at the finance department, uh, and I'm also the co-director of the FinTech program that we just launched. Sumit? Yeah, I'm Sumit Jha. I'm a professor in the computer science department, and the co-director of the FinTech program from computer science. Uh, my area of research is artificial intelligence. And we work on a variety of problems funded by DARPA, National Science Foundation, and a variety of other agencies that do not want to be named. Charlie? Hi, I'm Charlie Lay. I'm the CIO of Fairwinds Credit Union. Uh, I'm responsible for all technology and innovation for the credit union and ideally staying ahead of trends like open banking. And Fairwinds has been a very strong supporter of our fintech program. Um, They've contributed a million dollars towards a professorship in in fintech, and so we're happy to have you all here. All right, well, let's start at the beginning. What the heck is open banking? Actually, the year 1985 is apropos for this conversation, because I think that's the last time that a bank has created something that's truly innovated, maybe the debit card. That's probably inaccurate, but that's a good starter for a conversation around, around open banking. From our perspective, the conversation starts with, you know, level setting with, with what the definition of closed banking is. You know, banking as an industry uh, hasn't really evolved out of, you know, a 100-year-old, 200-year-old model where we have products and services that we think are important that you must have, and we make you come to us for how we're going to deliver them to you, and you must pay for them, and you have to like them, and you have to tell your friends that, that they're great so that they get them too. That's changing pretty quickly. What we, you know, we all have seen over the last uh, 10 to 15 years with the evolution of, you know, Apple, Facebook, Google, the power of technology has democratized, you know, the economy, um, you know, much less financial services. 
and through technology, you actually can deliver uh, you know, financial services that are meaningful to the, to the customer in a way that's much different than what banks uh, deliver today. So we see this as, as kind of a tremendous door opening to competition and evolving to something that's ultimately better for our customer. Gentlemen, either of you want to weigh in? Open banking uh, also more specifically refers to the idea of sharing of information, uh, personal information of individuals across different information from different institutions. So obviously data is very valuable because there is information in it. We can, if we observe how people shop, maybe we can advise them better about new products in the marketplace. If we observe, you know, how they spend money or how they save, maybe we can advise them better to make better, you know, investment or consumption decisions. Unfortunately, most of the data and information that people leave in the space out there is very, it's very dispersed. It's not concentrated. You have a credit card that you use, and there is something valuable in, in, your, in your statement about, that tells something about you. Uh, you have a bank account, you shop in Target, but this information just spread over, all over the place. And value could be created if this information is somehow concentrated, and if people are able to, to aggregate and consolidate all of the information that they leave here and there, you know, and, uh, and use it for, uh, for data analysis so that they can actually, we can learn something better about them. And uh, my understanding is that this is behind kind of the idea about open banking, how to create, uh, it's more like a platform similar to the internet and refers to the idea of enabling people, uh, in individuals somehow to aggregate and consolidate the tra information trace that they leave in the world out there so that it could be used for better, you know, uh, intelligence. I'm still having trouble getting my head around this, if I might. Why do I care if my data is concentrated? Let's Go think ahead. about, yeah, yeah. you know, why open banking now? Why not in 1985? Yeah, what's pushing for this? So I mean, open banking is really now an opportunity. What so for the first time, you have the internet, which is allowing you to move data very fast. Yeah. You have mobile phones, which are allowing an average consumer to have access to this internet and to move data around. So open banking is really providing us an opportunity to use data as the new oil. So now data is now the source of riches. And so now people have the power to use this data to actually create value from it. And so open banking, so I have been a user for an open banking platform for a couple of years now. And it is amazing to see the kind of data it can mine from multiple bank accounts about you. It can tell you that you are using, uh, you are paying for the streaming service that you are never using. And I had been paying for that service for quite some time. So that level of data analysis is only possible when you have these multiple accounts coming in one place, going through very rich data analytics, which is happening right now for two reasons. One, the internet, and other massive, massively parallel computing. So the rise of GPUs and neural networks and AI is what is providing these companies the power to analyze your data better than in 1985. Okay. Ultimately, though, this is going to allow me, the consumer, to make better choices about the financial products that I'm participating in? Is that where this is it? Because who's pushing for this? Yeah, and it, and it really is kind of stemming from this sense of, of competition, uh, enhancing competition, and ultimately doing something better for um, the consumer 
relative to what's being provided by traditional financial institutions today. Today, banks uh, offer products and services. We do, we create innovation. We create things that are really good for us and sometimes they're good for the customer. The concept of this making data available um, more democratically now opens up a level of transparency that you can do some really interesting use cases, for example. So what if I had a view of all of my spending patterns, but also behaviors, things like I pay my rent on time, I, um, I go to school and I get good grades, um, and that becomes potentially a proxy for a different credit, credit scoring model that I'm using in lieu of traditional credit scoring models, and it's based on an aggregation. That's just one use case. The, the kind of the beauty of, I think if anybody looks at open banking on the surface, you don't get it. But if you start to look at the use cases that you could potentially solve by, by opening up, democratizing, and also protecting the data, and then applying um, some innovation to that, then you start to get some really interesting so power out can of it. I get you to work through some steps here that'll help me and maybe my listeners understand what's really going on here? If I get this right, I can give permission to third parties to have access to my accounts, including maybe my bank account, that they would then be able to analyze my spending patterns, my investment patterns, my savings patterns, and provide me with either financial advice or with opportunities to save money or to purchase new products that are of interest to me. Is that right? That's accurate, and that's one use case. So. Okay. But if only I do that, that's not very helpful, I suspect, right? So you need millions of people to do this. Now, I'm going to tell you the story of my father. My father's 83. Okay, Pre depression era baby. And uh, every month, the Social Security Administration deposits a check in his account, and he walks down and withdraws all the money. He doesn't have a lot of faith in that system. Is that, is that, is that a fair statement <laughs> um, to, to, to kind of make? So why are millions of people doing this? Or are millions of people doing this in a way that makes this effective? So if you look at what has been going on in the London and Europe, they have They're made ahead of different us in systems. regulatory. The regulatory mechanism has forced them uh, to develop uh, IT infrastructure, which is different from their traditional IT infrastructure, with the idea that these third-party companies already have access to data, not actually to moving money from their bank accounts. And these third-party providers have access to a, what is called a scale-out system. So even if millions of people enroll in this program, the servers are not going to trash. Yeah, let me make sure I heard something right here. And, and, you know, Charlie, I'm glad you're participating here. I'm being devil's advocate a little bit, right? But, but banks didn't push for open banking. No, actually, if given, <laughs> if given their preference, this is the furthest thing from yeah, yeah, what okay. banks want. Point number one. Yeah. Um, point number two, I'm not sure consumers did. I think governments did. Mm -hmm. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. But consumers influence the government through the consumer, you know, protection agencies and advocacy groups in a way. So, uh, I, I mean, I completely agree. So, um, incumbents, you know, at least large banks, they are not qu quite interested in shaking, you know, 
changing you know, the space quite a bit. I think the two major forces driving it are startup firms and on the supply side, people see new products which could be helpful, they could create value and they start working on them. And the other side is the consumers, possibly through the government, you know, advocating for certain types of, you know, regulations and oversight. Because the banks have the scale by which to make this feasible, though, right? Because that's where the deposits are and where all the customers are. The largest banks do. Right? Yeah. 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 And kind of the devil's advocate position there is, um, besides consumers pushing for that, why would government push for this? You know, a, a view that I have is, they're look, they look at the banking model that exists today and they're looking a little further out and they see problems ahead. They see the consolidation that's happening in the industry and they see this constant um, kind of battle around the edges of other entities trying to get into similar and like businesses. And they're kind of, for, you know, this, this concept of open banking and opening the competition kind of forces the industry to innovate itself. Um, and it also raises the capabilities of your mid-sized small institutions to compete potentially at the same scale as some of the largest institutions without the largest institutions just using that scale to really dominate the entire marketplace. So it may, be, it may not be an accurate perspective, but it's an interesting perspective. In the United States, as I understand it yet, you're not forced to play in this game. We're right? not, right, right. And that's kind of the interesting take is so with the advances in Europe and UK and in Asia and Australia, the, our, our perspective is that your largest financial institutions are paying attention. And they're, if they're not already doing that in those markets, they're learning lessons that they're getting ready to bring to the United States with the intent of protecting their market share, protecting their revenue streams. And what that does is that further compresses any of the mid-sized, small regional institutions who aren't paying attention, and that just will weaken them further. And there, it's interesting that there are cultural differences across the world actually shape this process differently. And the way, you know, data, the data space changes is different in Europe because, and, and different in, from the, in the United States and different from Singapore, for example because kind of the local values and cultures are different. Europeans, they're very friendly towards regulation, so that's why most of the changes there happen from top down. U.S., not so much, and uh, uh, people are much, the culture here is such that, you know, people pro-market and very unfriendly towards regulation. As a result, most of the, uh, all of this innovation that happens, uh, takes place in U.S., kind of it's it's it it's not top down. It's more like bottom up. You know, it's it's driven by you know startup companies and, and entrepreneurs, and they kind of exercise certain pressure, and not as much from the consumer side, I would argue, and and through the regu regulatory side, as it is in Europe. So Europe is much more kind of friendly. It, mm -hmm. um, so as a consumer, uh, when a bank does not play very well with a fintech firm, and I don't have the data need to do what I need to do. What I did was just stop depositing my money into that bank account because I have no transparent access uh, to that system. So I think the consumers have a power and uh, they have a desire to use their money in a more visible manner. You know, those institutions who do not sort of start adopting this run the risk of losing their consumers, particularly the younger people, particularly people who spend their lifetime on a cell phone, uh, you know, people who are on Instagram for whom privacy is probably not uh, the same thing that it used to be 50 years ago. Or for my dad, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite app in this space? So far, do you have one? 
Not a single one, but there's a lot of innovation happening. I, I, you know, some, some interesting examples illustrate the power of this. Um, there's a video that um, it's been around for a few years. It's called How China's Changing the Internet. And it, and it showcases some of the capabilities within some, you know, somebody's day in the life of using WeChat. And the, 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 the payment illustration or the banking illustration is in, in this person's everyday life, you know, they're going to lunch and they're paying for lunch and they're socializing and they're doing normal daily tasks. I think one of the things they do is get their dog washed and then they pay for, for, for that. But they do all of this activity within the app. And what it illustrates for us is that we have to be cognizant of where consumers want to be and how they define convenience and, and, and don't make them come to us for the things that they want to do every day if they have to do that. Once they have a better alternative, they're, they're immediately going to choose that. That to me is what open banking embodies. If we can, through the technology, empower that and create new experiences, then we've got a different future and more relevance. So you got a favorite? You got a favorite app? I have open one, banking but space? I better not name it. <laughs> <laughs> what does it do? Can you tell me what it does? So it has uh, all information about my bank accounts, my credit cards, you know, um, if you have a child loan or a house loan, that information is in there. And it takes my fingerprint and then immediately goes to all the accounts, gets the data at that point of time, and then displays the summary for me to watch. Okay. So it takes me like half a minute to find out what I, how I am doing. And then, you know, if I need to make a transaction, it has the power to make those transactions. I don't use it uh, for security purposes. I prefer to make those transactions myself. But in terms of just observing the data, it is very helpful. Uh, it sometimes provides uh, in useful insights. Uh, it says that, you know, you spend so much money on uh, flights or on tickets, you should get a platinum uh, card or something like that. So, you know, it has a lot of AI built into it to analyze my behavior and say what I should be doing. Christo, you got one? I personally don't use one yet. I'm considering. Uh, yeah, Mint is uh, one of the uh, early, early players. Well, they do personal financial advice, whatever you do, you just described. So they could link you, you know, a couple of different accounts, and then they follow your activities and they alert you of behavior that could be potentially harmful or suboptimal. So they literally give you an advice, you're probably... So, so what'll make you do it or not do it? You said you're considering it. That's a good question. So I'm open to, I'm not a first adopter, so I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm not somebody who jumps. Absolutely, I think, uh, but I'm not the latest adopter either. So I'm, I'm kind of very interested in the technology and uh, I just maybe need to see the experiences of some of my friends and people I know and uh, collect a little bit more information about it. And, uh, and then I'm still not sure about the benefit that I'll get relative to the cost that it will take to set it up, you know, go through Spoken like a true economist, keep exactly. going. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I'm, I'm intrigued by the technology. I think it has definitely a, a potential and I can see how it could evolve very quickly. And at some point soon, probably I'll jump and, and participate in some of those. Are we seeing the end of traditional banking as we know it? I think so. An interesting analogy that I'll add on to the, you know, the favorite app isn't in the banking industry. Um, it's about Uber. And so think 15 years ago or 20 years ago, if you're in any major metropolitan city, 
and um, you get off your flight and you go out to the street and your options are really, you know, hoping that the time of day right, there's a taxi driving around. And if you hail them, you're hoping that you catch their attention. And if you ask anybody 15 or 20 years ago, what type of innovation would you imagine for that industry besides more taxis or longer arms or something like that, um, you'd, be, you'd be hard pressed to identify you know, how you would actually in innovate the space. So the idea behind not really just open banking, but, but um, technology innovation powered by fintechs is, is really thinking about creative ways to find unmet needs or unserved needs. And if you think about Uber, they're not a transportation company, they're a data company. And what they're really just doing is connecting a need through data to a solution and they're evolving into, they've evolved into Uber Eats and whatever they're imagining to do next. And it's really about solving for an unmet need. I see that same parallel for open banking through the fintech industry as the creativity explores use cases for consumers that can be solved through technology. There's things we can't imagine today that will resonate, but they'll have that same impact as, as Uber is doing. So will banks eventually turn around and buy some of these fintech companies and incorporate them into their structures? Is that a viable path forward? I mean, if I'm a bank, I'm a little worried about what I'm going to be left with. I mean, one way that I can think about this is that all these fintech companies are going to pick off all my high margin services and drive those values to zero. And I'm going to be left with the part of the business that no one wants. We should try to answer that question with another question. Uh, did, yeah. did IBM buy Microsoft? No. So, you know, software has value. It might seem that, you know, uh, from a very traditional perspective, that software and, you know, software systems or data systems have no intrinsic or have limited intrinsic value. But uh, maybe the times are changing and, uh, you know, these systems have intrinsic value. And, uh, you know, they may replace some of the traditional systems. And also, I mean, the technology makes the pie bigger. So banks could actually get a piece of the pie. So they could actually profit from it. And I'll just give you examples. For example, one of the major applications of this, like, big data analytics is actually the ability to extend credit to a lot of unbanked people who, who currently actually are outside of the banking system simply because the system is not capable to screen them well and evaluate the risk level. Uh, but the new but they're going to be open bankers? Is that what you're telling me? But the open banking actually, <laughs> the open banking actually allows for people to screen them to screen people much better. And even somebody who is virtually outside of the you know, major financial space, they still could leave actually a lot of information w based on where they show what they do. And this information would allow actually uh, someone to evaluate their credit worthiness and risk level much better and uh, extend them credit. So there will be a lot of new people actually joining the financial system as a result of that. The pipe gets bigger, banks could actually get some of it. So they, they could be actually interested in maybe supporting some of these technologies. What do you see as government's role in all of this? It seems a bit like the wild, wild west to me. We, we got a bunch of people out there running around developing a bunch of apps that are going to connect to my bank account or promise to connect to my bank account. I need to trust all of them, or at least some of them. I'm not sure I know what the definition of a bank is anymore. What's the role here? Well, in the European markets, the role of government you know, you know, with regulation 
um, is to drive standards, drive standard data, data practices, data, uh, standardized security measures. Um, third parties that are going to connect to the APIs uh, are vetted. Um, that structure adds safety and soundness to the ecosystem. We're, we're regulating the highway here, right? That's what we're doing. Yeah. Any, any others? Your time at the SEC, Christo, give you I any mean, insight? I, yeah, I think, yeah, it gives me, at least the, the way I see it, I mean, I think U.S., I mean, this could develop and could go a long way without severe government intervention. But one place where actually this government could step in and be very helpful is, uh, is in order to standardize the information. Because a lot of different banks, institutions, they could simply keep this data in different format and, diff and which would make it very difficult to integrate and use. And being passive aggressive about it, is that uh, what you're suggesting? Uh, maybe imposing some type of standards, you know, uh, and, and I think that's one of the biggest contributions in, you know, benefits of the Securities and Exchange Commission is exactly standardizing disclosures and making companies mm -hmm. use the same language. I think this could be very important in the data space because just to make sure that everybody you know, it's recording and keeping data using the same formats, the same kind of definitions. This would be, make it much easier to, for, for anybody to use it in. And uh, uh, it would, it's more difficult for companies to agree on that, much easier if you have some type of a regulatory body. It could be a self-regulatory agency. I mean, it doesn't need to be a government agency, but I see this definitely could add a lot of value. We've got a lot of smart people in the audience today. And anybody got any questions on this yet? Yeah, George. So the question was, what's the single most problem being solved by open banking and whose problem is it? Well, on the surface, it's the consumer is the, is the source point for the initial problem. Um, and it's really about uh, increasing choice, increasing convenience, just by exposing other avenues for them to control through their, through their uh, um, access to their data how they're, how they're provided financial services. Um, more interestingly, the other entities are the banks themselves. You, you know, kind of untouched, the industry within an, in an open competition market, the bigger guys are gonna get bigger. Um, they're gonna get stronger, their scale enables so much. The smaller to midsize uh, financial institutions will have a tougher time competing, and what that really means is, is less choice too. So the question has to do with cybersecurity and financial transactions and whether it will become bigger or be reduced by this. Uh, the first time that customers lose money or even lose their data, which has privacy issues, um, there will be a big backlash. And I think uh, since there are multiple number of players, you know, multiple types of apps, it is more likely to happen than not. And then there will be a need for some sort of I know either a standardization or some sort of a body that comes and says that, well, these are the good guys, these are the sort of all right guys, and these are perhaps people you should not trust. Uh, so cybersecurity is going to be a big challenge, and not just from individual players. Uh, it would be much, much more serious, well-organized, uh, nation-state type of actions uh, for, for cybersecurity. Is it crazy for me to think about the rogue app that's put on merely to steal the money out of my bank account? No, it is not crazy to think about a road app that steals your data, because I think that is feasible. Once you install an app, give it the permissions. If you choose to install the app, it is possible to do this today. But an app that actually moves money out of your account is much harder, because all the banks have hardened their cybersecurity uh, parameters. Uh, you, know, you have to have a one-time password. 
and other mechanisms. Uh, so we can probably be duped into doing this, but that will require... That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, actually, that is what I'm thinking. Uh, but that will require some collaboration from our part, you know. Or the North Koreans, maybe? Yeah. Do you have their own app? I don't know. <laughs> Stealing data is definitely possible. Uh, that, I think, is very easy, easily done. You know, once you trust a system, it has your data. So if you choose to trust it, uh, it will have your data. Uh, the question of ransomware on your on your fintech app. So ransomware is also going to be a serious problem. You know, depending upon what is there in the data, you know, of course you to be made to pay for it, you know, or to pay not to pay for it not to be released. You know, yeah. What about the idea of if if these fin companies are benefiting from getting my data, why don't they buy it from me? It's mine. Why should I just give it to them? Yeah, that's a very interesting view, and the same view also holds about social networks like Facebook or you know, Doodle Plus or Instagram, where data creators are giving data to these companies for free and they are benefiting from it. There are arguments to be made on both sides. Uh, there is some um, you know, value in the argument. So I think, hasn't Europe gone farther in that? In they, they've gone farther, but I, my immediate kind of response and reaction to it is that your value, uh, your data has value zero because by itself, by itself. Your, your data has only value if it's put in a pool of one million other people so you can actually see, you know, think it's about in relations it's to in others, relationship to right? others, exactly. Yes. I mean, even your, your blood pressure, your cholesterol, it's, they're just numbers. They have no meaning if you don't compare them to a large group of people. So that's why it's, it's hard to how much would you want? Would you charge you know, for your data? It's hard to it's hard to value. It's a kind of very interesting. I'll give it to a it's a very interesting phenomenon. I'll give it to a data exchange. They can sell it in bulk, and I get a cut. In, <laughs> a, in an LR blockchain, it is very not. It's not very hard to imagine that your data can be tuppled with millions of other data points, even in a very anonymized manner, and can create value for you. Uh, I think that's going to happen sooner than later. Europe is. Uh, moving in this direction, it gives you property rights in a way. It gives you more rights over your data. So if you would like to take it out of a bank, put it somewhere else, but they're not monetizing that right. So it's not mm. like you can, there's no market in which you can actually sell your data to the largest bidder, you know, or something like that. So I'm going to get more Google AdWorks now every time I use the word bank <laughs> in an email. So if you do not want to do that, you just need to change what browser you use install the Tor browser and be anonymous incognito. and incognito, be, you know, be behind an anonymous proxy. And, you know, so I know some computer scientists who do that because they don't want, you know, they just want to be a private person, you know. Because these apps, right, will have information to some really interesting information on you that companies would really want to purchase. So the role, the role of big tech in all of this, yeah. Well, think, right, Facebook's been talking about creating its own cryptocurrency, for example. Back when I was in graduate school, I taught in a maximum security federal prison, and one of the ways that people got into it is they created their own currency. The government really, really frowned on that, <laughs> as it turned out. But what about that? What about I? Uh, yeah, I think they're very good questions, and this is something which makes U.S. very unique and different from Europe is, is big tech. So in, as much as the government might, might not be as involved you know, in this process in U.S., big technology firms are, and they actually serve in a way perhaps similar role. And if it, as you mentioned, like Apple was technically in a war with Visa and MasterCard over Apple Pay, and they were able to 
actually push it forward. And uh, so in some sense, big tech here, because it's so big and so powerful, it's almost serves the role of a government in a way, right? So there, again, it's, it's, it is a powerful entity which plays, you know, with, with banks in this, in this field. And Europe doesn't have that. So, and I, I think that their role is going to be, it will continue to be very important in Amazon simply because we talk about, you know, open banking, but it's not just about banking. I mean, Amazon probably has more information about all of us than any bank in the world. So it's not about, it's about, you know, hospitals and it's about, you know, healthcare and uh, online and, you know, Facebook and social media. So they are actually in this space, they are very important, you know, the big tech companies, and they would push a lot of innovation there in, in, in this field. So. Yeah, and most yeah. of our big tech companies are very big into AI, and not AI, all AI is created equal. So some of this AI is going to be much more intelligent than others. So they would know more about you than, say, a startup that has just made its own AI. And then, you know, um, someone was giving me a problem that, you know, I want to find out if my, trans if my consumer is going to leave my bank. If you are a tech company and you have access to the social network and you know four of his friends have already left this bank, you know that this person is more likely to leave this bank than from his financial data. What's going to make or break the open banking initiative? What's the biggest threat it faces to just sort of go down in flames? In the U.S., lack of regulation. Ah, tell me more about that. I think that's the power for this to thrive uh, here. Um, if that doesn't happen, then there's really no motivation for the industry to embrace a standard that's adopted by really everybody. I think the biggest entities will, uh, will pursue this and they'll innovate for their own benefit, um, for their own objectives, uh, and, and that really stifles a lot of the, the kind of the, the spirit of competition, what's behind the, the, the sense of open banking. So you do not really need to have standards in place to enable open banking. It is harder to do it without standards, but it's not impossible to do it without sort of standards. So there's real demand from people, and people leave their banks because the banks are not helping uh, the fintech firms show them what they want to see. Um, then, you know, um, even without regulations, there could be some push in that direction. Time to make a bottom line assessment, each of you. Is open banking really a thing, or is it a passing fad? Christo? It is. I'm positive on that. I would bet on uh, uh, open banking, and I think it's going to go beyond banking. So it would be perhaps expand in other areas and other fields. And uh, that would be my evaluation. So, and I agree that, I mean, regulation, there could be a lot of obstacles, but if something actually, uh, there is a potential that create a lot of value, there's a lot of money on the table, usually people find ways to to extract it. So, and uh, uh, there would be some type of, you know, intervention and collaboration may perhaps that would enable this to happen. Sumit? I think by the end of next five years, more data requests will originate on third-party open banking platforms than from the websites or apps of individual banks. Yeah, that's the thing. Charlie? Um, I think it's a thing. Um, and we're, we're certainly trying not to play defense in our industry um, with our position. One of, the th one of our initiatives that we're going to be focusing on the next um, couple of years is really around how to create um, banking as a platform. Um, one of the first ways is for us to produce and publish our own APIs with the intent of exposing that for fintech yeah. development. So. Yeah. 
Here's how I think whether it's going to be a thing or not for me personally. I have two kids in college. I want an app that when they use their credit or debit card at 3 in the morning at a bar, it automatically sends a message from me that says, go home. Nothing good happens at 3 o'clock in the morning. You have an exam tomorrow. With that, thank you all. George Jetson might very well want one of those same apps to monitor household spending. He's likely to get one. Along with a lot of products that will help him understand his own finances better than he knows himself. My guess is that marketers, even in 2065, will covet this information. And crooks will be scheming to get into George's accounts. Keeping both groups out might be the ultimate key to success. What do you think? Check us out online and share your thoughts at business.ucf.edu slash podcast. You can also find extended interviews with our guests and notes from the show. Special thanks to my producer, Josh Miranda, and the whole team at the Office of Outreach and Engagement here at the UCF College of Business. And thank you for listening. Until next time, charge on. Internet killed the video star.